as I uh, get to know you all, you get to know me, and I find out what songs we sing well on the song sheet, what songs are new and uh, we thought new or whatnot. So all part of growing together and um, just worshiping together. So thank you, Nancy, for playing for us. Um, there are some themes in that song about the Word of God and uh, waiting for Him, the Lord, and the Word amidst uh, trouble, amidst uh, just affliction or just um, waiting for a full realization of living with the Lord that goes hand in hand with our passage this morning. If you're not already there, we're going to cover 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, verses 13 to, 19, uh, 13 to 20. Please uh, follow along as I read aloud 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do long for your Son's return. We long for his return, for sin to be finally removed from us, to boast, as Paul does here, in the appearing of Christ and in the glory in which he comes that will also make us glorious. Uh, far from this uh, fleshly body we have now, but um, the tent to be put away and to live um, imperishable and full of glory and joy without sin, without sorrow and death. We long for that day and we trust as we have read this morning and we'll learn that your word abides in us until that day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who accompanies your word. And as we listen to this, we pray that you would both help speaker and listener to set our minds to the scripture that we may profit from it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and his account of his time in Thessalonica. We know that um, from Acts 17 and from snippets of the letter here, 
Uh, his time in Thessalonica was not a long visit. It was mainly maybe uh, a month, maybe a couple months. But however short it was, he was intimately knit together with them in their heart. The language that Paul has for the Thessalonians is very dear, very affectionate, uh, even more so when we understand that he wasn't there for a long time. But as he has come to them and become a, like a mother to them or like a father to them, he is proud uh, in a sanctified way of the Lord uh, converting them and drawing them to him and also causing them to imitate others uh, along their walk of faith. This passage we have this morning is, is almost an identical parallel with what we've seen in chapter 1 already. In chapter 1, we have, through verses 2 to 10, we have Paul thanking God for the Thessalonians' conversion and how the Word of God came to them and how the Word of God worked among them powerfully and by the Spirit and how they are waiting for His Son from heaven. That's, that's, the, that's the paradigm in, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 10, which we've, we've already covered. It's the same exact paradigm he has in chapter 2 here as he closes. He opens with thanksgiving in, chapter, in uh, verse 13. He talks about how the word of God has come to them and works in them and does so in Christ's returns. But there's more. <laughs> there's not just that. That is the, the general framework of what he is doing, big blocks of thought. But there is a difference in, in this passage. And the big difference is the specificity of the opposition that the Thessalonians endured. He specifically goes at length to talk about what exactly and who exactly is opposing the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, he just mentions that they were receiving the word in much affliction, verse 6, 1, 6. In chapter 2, he actually has a significant digression from his argument and talks about who caused them to suffer and how they are suffering like the churches in Judea and really the devilish nature of the opposition that they're enduring. He speaks about the Jews who killed Christ and the prophets, drove out Paul, displeased all mankind and opposed the gospel from going out. And he even mentions in verse 18 that it is Satan who is hindering Paul in his missionary journeys. The Thessalonians, Paul is showing, Thessalonians, you're not just receiving some cultural pushback or cultural flack from coming to Christ. You have a real legitimate enemy. And this enemy manifests himself through your persecution when we come to you and proclaim that Christ is king, not Caesar. It's, it's not just a bit of a, oh, we, we lost some friends and family members. Um, you know, we have some, uh, some odd uh, social norms that we have to deal with. No, no, no. Paul says, Thessalonians, you have a real war going on. 
and to highlight just the magnitude of that war and who that war is being championed by on the other side. You have the enemy of the faith, the accuser of the brethren. And so this is how he structures this one, but he still does it in the context of, remind yourselves, Thessalonians, the word is at work in you. You have a war going on, but the word is at work in you, and you should have confidence in God's work in you. And we also then really take from this, we are not the Thessalonians. We're not going to pretend we have a battle in the same exact way they do, but, but the parallels are there. The word of God comes to sinners, converts them, and then all the while of that Christian living out his or her life, we're waiting for Christ to return. And yet, at the same time, in between the inception of our faith and it being culminated in glory, there's, there's turmoil. There's hardship. There's battles. There's wars going on. And, and Paul says, the word that you initially received abides with you until the day of glory and is still even more powerful than any opposition in between. So, you know, what, what does keep us? What, what guards us until the day of Christ Jesus? Generally, we would just say the Lord. God does. More specifically, Paul says the word of God that, that Peter says, which abides in you and lives in you, that is in you, working in you, invisibly, mysteriously, but working in all Christians, sanctifying them, marching them to glory until Christ comes back. So I want to look at, at those two themes, um, namely the word and our trouble uh, today. I want to notice first here that it is first God that causes us to receive the word and to recognize it for what it is. It is God who opens our eyes to see the word of God as the word of God and not words from men, not some philosophy, but is actually the gospel, the word of truth. In verse 13, he says, I thank God constantly for this, because when you receive the word of God, you saw it for what it is. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it is, the word of God. We already know that Paul, there's going to be a lot of parallels with this in chapter 1, but he already mentioned this in some way, because when they received the word, 1.5 says they received the gospel and it came not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So when the word came to them, they saw it for what it was, but they did not see it for what it was based on their own intellect or their own uh, inclination to seek out God. No, it was, it was God himself who opened their eyes. And in some way or another, this is what we all experience. We're, we're, in, a state of, we're in a state of sin. We're alienated from God, hostile, hostile to God. And we hear the gospel. And in some way, we, we would just attribute to the Spirit, it just sounds strange. It sounds different. 
the message of grace and glory by grace and not by merit is strange to the fallen man. It's different. It's unique. It's, we can't comprehend it. And often when we hear the gospel, it's like, really? Is that all I have to do? Receive Jesus? But, but, that is, but, but that's the work of what the word is doing in the lives of the person who receives the word and causes us to then say, well, it's, a, it's someone speaking, and it's a person, it's a man or a woman telling me this gospel, but there's something else going on there. It's not just the words of men. It's actually somebody else's words. It's God's words. So how do we know it is God speaking? How do we know it is the word of God that is at work in us? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul tells us what is going on invisibly that causes us to all of a sudden esteem the gospel differently than we had before. We might have thought the gospel was just myth, legend, foolishness, something to do when you're grown up. Kids, don't make my mistake. Receive Christ today. I thought, oh, that's, churches are like, that's an adult thing, right? <laughs> no. No, receive Christ today. That would be God's will for your life, that, that we would not just put off things that we think are serious later, but we would receive him while we actually hear and accept it. But, but this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. This is what's going on. We have not receive the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What is Paul saying? I know this is redundant because we cover this in, in Sunday school for some of us, but Paul is saying you did not esteem the gospel as valuable, as life-saving, as gracious, as wonderful by yourself. You only did that because the Spirit opened your eyes and caused you who were in a previously natural state to see something spiritual as wonderful. That does not happen apart from God. No amount of education, no amount of going to a, a private Christian school or seminary or going to church can change one's disposition towards the Word of God. Only God changes our hearts to esteem the Word of God as truly the Word of God. Otherwise, it's just a message of foolishness. Otherwise, we just think it's just legend, just folly. Something Paul goes at length to talk about in 1 Corinthians 1. It's just foolishness. But this is how, but this is how the Lord works in us. The Word of God comes to us. And by His Spirit, we esteem the Word of God as the word of God. 
and it begins to work in us. Secondly, I want, I want to show you here, God uses the word to make us imitators in suffering. God uses the word to make us imitators in suffering. No one wants to sign up for suffering. No one likes suffering. But at the end of verse 13, he says, This word of God, which is at work in you believers, for or because, brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For or because you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So he's linking several things here together. One, the word of God is at work in believers. It is at work in believers. How do we know that? Because you, come, you become imitators of other Christians, other churches. Thirdly, we, know we become imitators in the way we suffer. Now, all suffering might look different, but for what Paul is telling the Thessalonians and what they experienced, you can know you really receive the word of God. You can really know that you are elect of God because you are imitating the already provenly faithful churches in Judea. Which just like just a side tangent, that's that's why we are confessional here. Like when it comes to church life, novelty and new ideas are usually wrong. <laughs> we want to do what churches in the past have done. We don't want to create a new way. If a, a church pops up and it looks nothing like what faithful churches have already looked like, we should be suspicious. God does this. He says, I'm going to send my son, linking the imitators of chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's going to send his son. People believe on his son. The people who believe on his son imitate the son. People imitate those who imitate the son. And it goes on and go on and it goes on. And that's how God is making disciples, not by novel preaching or new ideas or doctrines but simply imitating the churches of God who are already in Judea or who are already in existence. So, the Word of God makes us imitators. When we turn to Acts 17, we see just how they were imitators of the Jews, of, excuse me, of the churches in Judea. Acts 17, 6 and 7 says this. So Paul and his team have come to Thessalonica. They have preached. And this is the response of the unbelieving Jews and Thessalonians. They say, these men, speaking of Paul and Silas and Timothy, these men who have turned the world upside down, which is a wonderful title to be described by. That the gospel turns someone's world upside down. I, I know in like a Hallmark card kind of way, like someone meets somebody else and they start dating. And it's like, oh, wow, that person turned my world upside down. Like, I don't know what to do now. That person's so amazing. Like, this is far more, maybe that's a bad example, but this is far more <laughs> radical than that and comprehensive. But the gospel is causing a crisis of worlds and realities 
for the Thessalonians. So they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, who is a, a Christian in Thessalonia, Thessalonica, Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now we're getting to the heart of how they are becoming imitators of the churches of God in Judea. Paul was preaching Jesus as king. He was preaching the lordship of Christ so real, so tangibly, that the pagans thought there was really another king among these people, the Thessalonians, the Christians, and that this new king, Jesus, was a challenge and a threat to Caesar. Claudius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time. That's how palpable the, the riot was in, Thessalonia, in Thessalonica. It wasn't just like, oh, that's the spiritual realm, doesn't apply to us. We live here in the material realm, the earthly realm, and we all know our emperor is Caesar. No. Paul so powerfully preached and appropriately talked about Jesus as a king that the people thought, oh, this guy is a threat. And these people, our fellow Thessalonians, are believing in this, in this Jesus guy. Let's snuff this out. <laughs> Thessalonia, Thessalonica being a major city in the, emperor, um, in the empire of Rome. But for this devotion to Jesus, the Thessalonians were persecuted. So Paul says in verse 14, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Because, or in this way, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did the Jews. So just like your Thessalonian countrymen turned on you, Thessalonians, the Jews turned on their their brothers and sisters, other Jews, in Judea. And there is this conflict of worlds. And this is... This is the conflict that Jesus brings. This is, this, is, this is why Jesus says, "I'm in part, this is why Jesus says, I come to bring a sword. I'm coming to divide your idea of uh, kingship. Or really, I'm coming to divide your idea of reality as you know it with my reality, which is the truth. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he causes this split. Thessalonians turning on Thessalonians, Jews turning on Jews. So he tells the Thessalonians, in some sense, this should not, this should not alarm you. This is a natural implication of the gospel. That when the gospel is preached, when King Jesus is proclaimed, he is going to be seen as a threat to other kings. And people under that otherworldly kingdom are going to gnash their teeth at the thought of someone else ruling over them. This, turn over to Psalm 2. This is so powerfully depicted in Psalm 2. This is the war of, of worlds, really. Jesus is king, and everybody, whether it's an emperor or someone living under an emperor, or any kind of civil magistrate, has to come to the terms of this. Will I live for Jesus, 
or will I follow the government that I know as a, as a carnal, uh, unbelieving person? But look at, look at how Psalm 2 states this. Notice this um, hostility. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. That's the thought of an unregenerate person who doesn't like the idea of Jesus reigning over them. It's, I want my sovereignty. I want my autonomy. And what does Jesus do? He sits in the heavens and laughs. And the, whole, and the Lord holds them in derision. That, that's, that's the battle that's going on in Thessalonica. That's the battle that happened in Judea. That's the battle that happens in Cody. When the gospel comes to a group of people, it's either stick with what we know, even though it's to our detriment and eternal damnation, or go with King Jesus. And when the population sees, well, if they, if they go to King Jesus, they're now our enemy, that means war. Now, granted, we live in a culture that, in Cody, that's not really going to happen in, in the way it happened here. That we can tell. I don't know. But this is the, this is the war of reality and of worlds that's going on when Christ is proclaimed as king. Will my allegiance be with my former life or will the, my allegiance be with King Jesus? Now, on this point of this hostility and specifically the hostility that the Jews had against their own countrymen, Paul takes a digression. He digresses and he speaks just, just on the real demonic, murderous nature of the opposition. So he says the Jews killed the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets and drove out Paul and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering Paul and the others from preaching the gospel. Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to know, one, you're not alone. The other churches in Judea struggle with the same thing. And two, I need to open your eyes to the real nature of this battle. This isn't just a matter of you don't fit in anymore or you're awkward in the social, city, social settings anymore. No, he says, there is a principle at work now against you because you are affiliating yourself with Jesus Christ. And that principle is so strong, it killed Christ. It's so long-lasting that it reaches all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. And it is so real, it's the reason why we didn't stay but for several weeks in Thessalonica. There is a clear principle at work here in the Christian's life. 
and that there is a word working in the believer to sanctify them until the day of Christ Jesus. There is also a word working against the believer that if Satan could, he would kill Christians as well. But look at what he does here. Look at what Paul says. He, and this is no, he's not harping on Jews. He can't be anti-Semitic. He is a Jew. <laughs> he's just saying these are the facts of, of who is really beyond in the battle here. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets. Paul puts the blame at the Jews' feet for rejecting Christ, crucifying Christ, and also killing the Old Testament prophets. This, Paul borrows from Jesus. If you turn to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has several woes or maledictions against the scribes and Pharisees and teachers. And in chapter 23 of Matthew, specifically in verse 29, Jesus hits on these things which Paul has already has picked up on. So in Matthew 23, verse 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that, you may, so that on you may come all the, righteous, all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. There's a lot of overlap between what Jesus says there and what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. The spirit that is against the Thessalonians is the same spirit that was in the men who killed and crucified Christ. So it's, he's just saying, like, Thessalonians, I want you to know. They're not, they're not playing around. If they killed Christ, and you already saw the mob and the riot they formed in your own town, they don't have any problem doing the same to you. So Paul, I mean, and Paul has already said, hey, I became a father to you. Like, and I'm going to tell you some tough things, as a father needs to say. I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to hide it from you. But these Jews, and not speci- yes, specifically the Jews, but more um, categorically, this murderous, devilish intention was the intention behind those who killed Christ. Not only that, who killed the prophets. And Paul's not talking about New Testament prophets. He's talking about Old Testament prophets. The ones that J- Jesus alluded to in, in Matthew 23. 
Israel has always rejected God's divine plan. And the satanic enmity that is against God flushes itself out so that they'll kill the Christ, the sent one, the Messiah, and all the prophets who tell them, repent so that you will be brought back into union with God. The same, it's the same skirmish, just on a different level. And, and, and Paul says, not only did they kill Christ, not only did they kill the prophets, they also drove us out. It's, it's one thing to say, hey, this group of people, about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, killed Jesus. They've also been in, standing in the long line of murderers from the Old Testament. <laughs> and it is so real, it's the same principle, it's the same opposition that drove us out just a few weeks ago. Paul writing this probably six months after he got to Thessalonica, writing this from Corinth. He says, this is real, guys. This is a real battle. And on top of that, he says, this spirit, this disposition against King Jesus, they displease God, which is no small um, underhanded way of saying of what Paul did earlier, that he, he, he seeks to please God in all things. And these, they do not seek to glorify God. Man's one call in life is to glorify God. They displease God, and they oppose all mankind. How do they oppose all mankind? By refusing the gospel to go out. And then, and then in verse 18, we see another variable, another, another dimension of this fight. It is Satan who hindered us. So Paul's, Paul's bringing together this, this collection of proof, this, these collections of evidences, and says, this is who your enemy is. It's very, very real. It's not some like, idea of, that some other believers are dealing with that, that hasn't hit home to you. No, you see it, and you're imitating your brothers and sisters in enduring it because the Word is working in you to do that. Paul goes further. Not only does he say this about those who are responsible for Christ's death, the prophets driving out Paul from Thessalonica and oppose all mankind from speaking to the Gentiles the gospel so they might be saved, but they do this, verse 16, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. They do this so as to always, or so as um, have habitually have been doing it to fill up the measure of their sins. Paul's saying this is their streak. This is what they're. This is the rap sheet. <laughs> this is what they're known to do. Kill an innocent Messiah, hate mercy, love, love murder, <laughs> hate the gospel, hate grace. And hate the idea of someone else coming to Christ. And they do this to fill up the measure of their sins. Really the same language Jesus used in Matthew 23. So what does it mean that they filled up the measure of their sins? It's used um, multiple times 
in the Old Testament to refer to a people's or a group of people's insistence on sinful activity. Just a stubborn, recalcitrant insistence on sinful activity until it reaches a limit where then God will judge them. The the most popular one is probably the sin of the Amorites. God tells Abraham, this will happen some time from now, but the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. And once that reached to its climactic moment, I will bring you out of Egypt and bring you into the land. But their sin is not yet complete. It also happens in the book of Daniel chapter 8, speaking of the nations whose sin must arise and, and foam up and fill up this cup until the Messiah comes. But here he says, these Jews have been doing this and they're filling up the measure of their sins. They're, they're reaching max capacity and now God's wrath has come upon them. And we could say, wow, man, Paul, you're really taking this like fatherly advice like to a new level. You're not sugarcoating anything. But yeah, God's wrath has come upon them at last. We may say, in what way? How has God's wrath come upon the Jews? Well, not much further from this moment in time, God's wrath will come upon them in the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Maybe a couple decades away, in AD 70. God will bring the Roman Empire onto the doorsteps of Jerusalem and completely, completely obliterate it. Completely obliterate it. So that there will never be a temple ever built there again. And there hasn't. But this is God's wrath that has come upon the Jews. There was a, there's a possibility Paul might be alluding to an eviction the Jews have had out of certain towns in this time, maybe AD 49, 50, 51, that Paul is talking about. That might be it. It might, it might more seriously be the complete annihilation of all ritualism and all any semblance of Judaism in the Old Testament by, Roman, by Rome's destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And if it's not that, we know then for sure that the wrath that is coming upon them at last is just simply the wrath that will come upon them in the, at the end of the age. And that's the wrath that will come upon any non-Christian. But they are stacking up their sinful activity and God is keeping account of it. He's keeping account of it, and he will deal out that punishment when he is ready to. I know we've been harping on the Jews here and that spirit of animosity, which is in them to kill Christ and the prophets and all that, but we cannot walk away from this and forget that is us, apart from Christ. Yes, Rome nailed the nails in Christ's hands. Jews sawed the prophets in half. 
Others drove out Paul. But the spirit of man that was in them that did that is in every single person. And if you are not in the Lord, you might not think your capacity for evil is, a, is that bad, but it is. This is the state of all fallen men and women and children prior to Christ opening their eyes. And even though as a Christian today, we don't have that disposition, we should look at this and say, thank you, Lord. Because I had that same murderous spirit that was in my father, the devil, And I don't have that anymore. And that has only come by the grace of God. The, the, the radical break the Spirit does in the Christian from the domain of darkness into walking to Christ's marvelous light is just that. It's radical. It's a severe severance break from that devilish life. We're called children of wrath, sons of disobedience. We, we can look at this and say, praise you, Father. Thank you, Christ, for even though I was guilty of your crucifixion, you had mercy on me. Because I was your enemy. And on the other hand, as a Christian, we can look at this and say, there is a powerful, powerful spirit against me. But there is the word of God, which is at work in me. And what will keep me, what will preserve me, what will guard me until the day of Christ Jesus? Not myself. Not my spiritual disciplines, but the word implanted in me, which Peter says is an imperishable seed. It's a wonderful picture he has in Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1. The seed is implanted in us, and it's growing and growing and growing and growing until the imperishable, excuse me, the perishable puts on the imperishable. What, what keeps us from aligning ourselves with our enemy? What keeps us from throwing in the towel in the middle of persecution or oppression? The word which is at work in you believers. Powerfully at work, invisibly at work, even mysteriously at work, but at work nonetheless. Because the word is not there by itself, but is accompanied by the Spirit of God. Matthew Henry, a Christian commentator, says the word of God being compared to a seed teaches us that though it is little in appearance, yet it is wonderful in operation. Think about just a little, whatever seed, big seed, small seed, apple seed, orange seed, whatever. From that seed grows a tree, a plant that is 
truly wonderful in operation. He goes on and says, though it lies hid a while, yet it grows up and produces excellent fruit at last. This is happening in all of you Christians, most of the time unbeknownst to you, but by the power of God. That is good news. That you are not walking this path, this road alone, but have a powerful principle in you preserving you until the very end. So, so first, God opens our eyes to see the Word of God for what it is. Secondly, the Word of God, God causes to work in us, even despite suffering, to imitate our Lord, imitate other Christians. And thirdly, God keeps the Word working in us until the day of glory. If you look down, verses 17 to 20, Paul says, he, he, he ends his digression, comes back and says, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, which is, which is a wonderful picture. Um, he's already said, I become like a nursing mother to you. I become like a father to you. And if we were to translate this very literally, he says, I became an orphan from you. We were torn away as a child was torn away from its parents. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, but not in heart, but, but in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly, eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. But this is where Paul ends his his elaboration on the word in them and his own confidence that the word will do what he thinks it will do. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Just a quick word. We're going to get into this much later in chapter 4 and 5. But the appearing of Jesus Christ in verse 19, the before our Lord Jesus at his coming, is no secret rapture. Perusia, the word for coming, other trans, otherwise translated appearance or presence, it's his, it's his second only coming. <laughs> There's no... I'm going to kind of flirt with coming back and then go back again. <laughs> By, and and I, I, I know some of, maybe some of you, some of our brothers in the faith, believe in a rapture, a secret rapture. It just doesn't make sense to say Jesus is going to come back visibly and it's a secret. <laughs> the word there, parousia, is a visible presence. So he's coming back. And he's coming back to take his people back. And Paul says, you Thessalonians, you are our hope. You are our joy. You are our crown of boasting. You are our glory. Paul has no greater aspiration than to see those he ministers to 
make it to the end. He loves the idea of those whom he ministered to, preached to, running the course, walking their way of faith, and finally arriving at the shores of the promised land beyond the River Jordan. That is his great aim, his great motivation. That's what's driving Paul. He loves the idea of seeing those whom he ministered to be glorified. That his work would not be in vain. And that Christians would receive the culmination of their sanctification in the presence of Christ. So much so does he want that, that if we read this question in verse 19 out of context, we would all give the typical Sunday school answer. If someone came to you and said, what is your hope? What is your joy? What is, what is your crown of boasting when Jesus comes back? Would you not say him? Jesus. He's my hope. He's my joy. He's everything. He's everything. But, but so in love is Paul with the Thessalonians and so concerned is he of their spiritual welfare. He says, you are our hope and joy and crown of boasting. That is Paul's pastoral M.O. with a genuine heart. He wants nothing else to see saints come to the fruition of their faith in Christ. He, he, he labors with the Galatians and he says, how I want to see Christ formed in you. I'm laboring like a mother in labor with a child. And here he says, this is our glory. To see other brothers and sisters come to faith and then be presented before Christ and Christ accepting that gift. I don't know if it was Thomas Goodwin or Richard Sibbs. One of them said, uh, what is a minister but friends of the bride? And simply saying, I'm just pointing you to the bridegroom, bride. Paul has no glory in himself, no hope in himself, no crown of boasting in what he does. Everything about Paul's ministry is glorying in Christ Jesus who does a good work in his people by his word. That is Paul's, like, dessert. That is really not just Paul's idea of wonderful good news and not just a minister's idea of good news, but that is what we should all think of for each other. Not competing with one another, manipulating one another, but saying, I cannot wait for Cindy or Mary or someone to, to at Christ appearing, be wonderfully glorified. That is what keeps me going. That is why I would open my door. That is why I would share the gospel. That is why I would have people over. That is why I do all of these things so that when Christ comes back, he is going to say to his servants, 
Well done. Well done. And Paul is confident it's not him. We could go to 2 Corinthians, other passages which, where, where Paul kind of laments himself and his own weaknesses, but we all know, Paul knows, this is all of Christ Jesus. This is all of the Spirit. This is all of, of the Father's preserving grace. This is not him at all. This is the Word which is at work in you believers doing this. Martin Luther was a man who loved the Word. And he was a character. Um, and he had a just conviction of steel that he didn't do any work. It was all Scripture. It was all the Word of God through his ministry. And he preaches, and this is a, an excerpt from one of his sermons. And you can tell um, that there are, there's a point in his life now where he is hearing others associate themselves with Luther's teaching, right? Or Lutheranism, even though it's a bit anachronistic to use that. But he says this, What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor, stinking, bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. That, that's Luther's MO. That's Paul's MO. The Word does it all. It's a freeing thing to know all I have to do, all I really get to do, is love each other and trust that the Word is at work in every single person. And I'm not over that Word, and I'm not dictating what that Word should do in one person. But I leave it up to the Spirit of God to do that in His own children, in His own people. Paul would say to the Philippians, I am convinced of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it com to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's how confident he is that this work, that this, that this word is at work in people. It will abide and live in the Christian until Christ comes back. It doesn't lay dormant, but it is living and active, sanctifying you. It goes beyond what you can do for yourself, piercing and discerning the thoughts of your heart. Your heart, which even troubles yourself and confuses yourself, the word itself is not fooled by. If you hide the word in your heart, you will not sin against God. When you delight in this word, you won't perish in your affliction. The word is a constant and yet invisible companion on your way to glory. And even though we may forget about it at times, like, Pilgrim did in Doubting Castle. He's locked up in the jail cell and he realizes, oh, I forgot. I've had the key the whole time. 
the word of truth. Click, I'm out of here. <laughs> Please, brothers and sisters, remember the word is in you to help you in times of danger at any station in life. And yeah, I'm not going to put on a front and say we will experience exactly what the Thessalonians did. Maybe not in such tangible ways, but you better understand that there is an enemy who wants nothing to snuff out your faith and kill you. But he who is in you is more powerful than he who is in the world. And he will keep you, he will guard you until the day of Christ appearing. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we have so much confidence in our future. Not because of us, but because of you. You have implanted a living and abiding seed in us, and it is growing to completion, performing its wonderful work until Christ comes back. I pray you would strengthen my brothers and sisters, remind them that this word is acting in them, operating upon them as they live out their faith, even though they may not see its effects, it is most surely transforming them into the image of Christ. Give us that joy. Give us that hope that when Christ comes back, our faith will be sight, and we'll dwell with him eternally. Amen. You can stand for our song.